Welcome to the Baldy Center for Law and Social Policy podcast. I'm your host, Simon Honig. Today I am joined by Dr. Sean Anderson. Dr. Anderson is an award-winning associate professor of organizational communication at Loyola Marymount University. He is an internationally recognized scholar that examines how sport has influenced business, politics, and society. He is also the founder of CSR Global Consulting LLC, which assists organizations in developing and implementing social responsibility initiatives. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Sean Anderson. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Starting right off, I just want to ask you how you view the importance of uh, the passage of Title IX. You know, um, Title IX is, is... Of course, a very important uh, piece of legislation. You know, if we think about it, it's it's rather older, you know, um, but it's something that has, in many cases, stood the test of time. For many who may not know, it was actually an amendment to Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Of course, that banned discrimination within organizations, but um, lawmakers felt that you know, that needed to be a focus on educational institutions. And so that legacy was rather broad, but what was a positive effect, I believe, after that was the increase of women in organized sport, playing sport at the college level, things of that nature. So it's 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 an important passage. It's a short kind of passage, but it does hold a lot of power. In your opinion, what are the strengths and weaknesses of of the uh, of the law as it's written. Yeah. So uh, like you say, very short. I think it was under 40 words. <laughs> Again, one of the strengths was, of course, the push for the eradication of discrimination and uh, the purposes behind the fact that any institution that was receiving federal funding, you know, right, could not receive it if it kept engaging in discrimination practices. Now, here's the thing. Those are the positives, but it's been sporadic uh, over the times of this passage. You know, there's been a lot of, um, I guess, selective discrimination, if you want to call it that, as far as like what is considered uh, the best things to handle. You know, over its time, there were even several people from certain organizations that said, well, okay, this is great for the college environment, but it trickles down to high school as well, where there was really no understanding of what was going on and how to handle those issues at that level. And so, um, again, we still continue to see instances of sexual harassment and violence throughout the, you know, the years of the passage of this. So, you know, it's very important, but uh, there's still some things that need to happen in order to achieve equality. So turning to you and your areas of research, can you give a short description of your your area of expertise, perhaps, and how you counter or interact with Title IX? Yeah. So um, my focus of my work is the intersection of sport and corporate social responsibility. So, of course, how can organizations uh, be profitable? but also care about the needs of their stakeholders. So whether it's, um, in this case, um, the NCAA and its athletes, or in other cases, you know, an organization and its employees, it's the, the 
the customers and all of that. And so for me, I have taken upon the, the challenge, if you will, to test the use of CSR in sport and to, to test its success. Because there have been several you know, research studies that have been done relative to these areas. But recent complaints from other scholars are saying that, you know, yeah, sports organizations are putting these initiatives out there, but we can't measure them. We don't know the success of them. Again, it's like, how do we know if this is working? And so for me, I'm currently working on a book um, that's developing a framework for sport organizations to use when creating and implementing CSR initiatives. And so the premise of this book stems from the United Nations and their sustainable development goals and them saying that sports could come in and eradicate a lot of issues such as poverty, inequality, um, infrastructure, and, and women's equity. And so, again, they highlight the importance of sport, but no one knows its success. And so with this book, um, and if adopted by sport organizations uh, and their decision-making processes, you know, I'm sure that there will be some encounters of Title IX. Me and a couple of other colleagues are also working on a study that's looking at identity gap issues um, within sport organizations among women. And so, um, the real, whether it's, you know, women who are interns uh, within sport organizations all the way up to top levels and um, across professional sports and collegiate sports. And so, again, we're looking to see, at least in our preliminary work, that there have been several instances where, you know, of course, Title IX has been not useful, especially in the way that they cope with the day-to-day -day goings of work. And so um, those are some of the things that I've seen that I'm sure I will continue to see as I put this work forward. So you're basically trying to come up with measurable indicators for like the success of corporate social responsibility? Correct. And so, um, and if these initiatives are not, you know, proper, then the goal is to evaluate, you know, revise and re-implement. And so as to go away from just putting out these initiatives, like you would see a, a, a toddler throwing a spaghetti on the wall, and hoping that these initiatives stick. That's that's not that those are the things that we need at this point. We we need to have tangible evidence, not just throwing things out there and just hoping that they work. And right. so that's the goal with this. Excellent. That's very interesting. You are obviously a scholar in the area and you've spent time, a lot of time, you know, researching and learning about this subject. Um, but how do you believe? the public perceives title nine and what do you what do you think its legacy is in in the eyes of the average person yeah so um you know we are approaching the 51st anniversary of this laws it's important but i think what comes with a uh law such as this is uh the shifts in our society so you're talking about the civil rights era pre and post where there was a society where they didn't want to go to war, you know, peace, love, right? Then there was the introduction of the Black Panther Party. And, and so all of these sort of social movements over the last years 
have really shifted the way that we see policy. And the same goes with uh, Title IX. You know, we, we've seen documentaries, right, about the success of women in sport, you know, because that seems to be the biggest talking point out of this law. But again, you have those detractors who then may say, this is sort of reverse discrimination because it's taken away from, you know, the support of, of men athletes and, and, and especially at the collegiate level. It's powerful. You know, it's, it's the legacy is powerful. It's murky, yet important <laughs> for equality. So how would you like to see that kind of perception challenged these days, whether it's through social activism or or ending up being policy changes? How would you like to see that being changed? You know, I think um, a few years ago when we had March Madness, the uh, women's basketball teams that were participating kind of gave us a, an understanding of where uh, this law was at the time, you know, when we saw the facilities that the men had relative to working out, it was, you know, a beautiful thing. But then when they showed theirs, you know, it was virtually an empty room with a couple of dumbbells and, you know, being able to have the same type of participation. When they put that out to the media, that made the NCAA say, okay, well, we need to do something about this. Right. So if we saw that, then that speaks to the volumes of, okay, we're going to put this message out here, but what can we get away with at the time <laughs> that, that, you know, that we don't have to put any more money towards for this whole thing of equality, right? And then that's where we get the term sports washing, you know, and publicity stunts, as in to say, we're going to do and be a part of a certain cause, but it doesn't come to fruition or it doesn't help anybody. And so the challenge would be, how could we make these organizations committed to equality? And in most cases nowadays, how do we properly define it and make commitments to it? So you think that on the activism side of it and athletics, you think that kind of comes through social reform and maybe pressure from media and social media because these days obviously everything's out there and once you know once it goes on twitter it's up for everyone to see but um sure. that's kind of where the pressure comes from yeah because you know um the court of public opinion nowadays um is very powerful like you mentioned 30 40 years ago organizations can make rules and changes and pretty much people will be afraid to call them out and hold them accountable but you cannot escape video footage. <laughs> you can't escape reporting via social media where there may be a, a person who is a whistleblower or something who has a million followers that says, okay, Title IX is here, but this university is not following through properly. You know, you can't you can't escape that anymore. So those types of activism um, aspects will work, but also that more face-to-face -face type of activism like we've seen with Black Lives Matter, for example, uh, the Me Too movement, the more global Occupy Wall Street movement of 2008, those sort of things are crucial for, again, the necessity of equality uh, within this realm. And so it, as long as we can continue to see that progress through those types of activism, 
maybe we'll see uh, things kind of become better over time. Do you see that as a starting point for policy reform as well? Or how do you think that that side of it would gain traction? I know a lot of times that it kind of sometimes takes an event to occur for policy to actually for politicians to be like, all right, maybe we need to do something about this now. But um, outside of some sort of event that really stirs things up, how how else does policy reform come about in this area? I think at this point, because like you say, we've seen certain instances of harassment, abuse, brutality, you know, and the like, you know, we we are desensitized in many ways to those things happening. And then there's a reaction. But I think continued pressure on local officials all the way up to the federal level is crucial to um, policy reform, policy change, um, becoming aware of the things that, let's say, for example, we're holding elections. What are these candidates actually fighting for? If it's something that's against what you're trying to fight for, then, you know, of course, you can't go for that candidate. Um, I, I think that becomes uh, the case at this point. And, and the thing is, too, and, and, I've, and I say this, and I say this a lot relative to professional athletes, but I do believe that at some point there needs to be some type of attached to um, collegiate athletics uh, relative to if an athlete has an issue and they may not necessarily know the laws that are associated with it, that they can have a, a, a team of legal experts or, you know, some type of sociologist or, or someone who has the expertise to help them understand what it is that they're going through in order to strategically create uh, something that leads to policy reform. I believe it could be done, but I think those are the steps that can get us there. That's actually an interesting point because um, some of the new uh, name, image, and likeness bills that are floating around, specifically the one in New York, does mention um, that schools should provide programs for the well-being of athletes and yeah. mental health resources and stuff like that and they can be represented and you know they can't the school can't prevent them from being represented but it's interesting on the, on the women's sport side of things where sure everyone should have access to mental health services but also other counseling services in in the area of women's sports where there tends to be more harassment and those kind of issues so that's an interesting position on the on the NIL bills we talked a little bit before about uh, the shortcomings of Title IX. Um, they've made they've been made obvious by some university policies uh, across the nation. There's been there's still programs that you know men's programs are still more funded than women's programs. There have been instances yeah. of some schools taking away um, other scholarship for women in other departments because of the women's sports has been getting net funding and they're kind of diverting it instead. Which do you think pose the, the the biggest threats to to women's sports and women's collegiate education? It's an interesting one. I think and and all of those are, are many of the challenges, of course, that are that are still faced. But I think one that's actually going to take longer than most is the legislation regarding transgender athletes. And I say that because, you know, we know that Title IX is 
uh, again, kind of selective in the understandings of uh, who to help and who not to help. And it comes to a point of these athletes wanting to participate in the sport in which they identify. But see, you have challenges with that because, like, for example, you had the legislation such as the Protect Women of Sports Act of 2020, which is, you know, has been passed. It's just been introduced. You know, it's a detractor of that discrimination. And then you have um, the conversations on biological, um, you know, disposition, right, which gives parents of women who were biologically born women, you know, the opportunity to sue the NCAA if it, you know, allows a transgender woman to participate in that sport. And so I think that's going to be a long time associated with uh, a lot of legal cases, a lot of lawsuits, a lot of appeals. And, you know, that's going to be something that's going to take, uh, I believe, several years to even make an inch in the progress of it. And so where does that leave these particular athletes? Uh, do we continue to push for them to be able to participate in the sport that they identify? Do we create an entirely different, you know, sports section altogether, which some people have argued for? That remains to be seen. Um, but again, it speaks to the deficiencies of Title IX, not necessarily the law itself, but how we define what's a discriminatory practice or not. Do you think that there's success to be found in amending Title IX, or do you think it's an entirely kind of separate framework that needs to be created? No, I think, you know, um, with any type of shift in our society, and we're seeing more shifts um, more frequently now than before, it could always give a refresher to Title IX in that sense, because, again, at its base, it, it's it, it it it's great in theory, right? And and how we should move forward, but I think there needs to be something that allows for flexibility over time. You know, I know we we need to have certain standards and all of that, but just like the amendment to Title VII, I think we just need to see some progress with it uh, moving forward. This is not just, even back to the transgender athletes. This is also a case of medical research. You know, how does the understandings of the body when an athlete transitions, you know, how does that measure up to, you know, those again who identify or who are biologically of this particular gender? So it, it, I think it calls for more amending than it does creating a whole new thing altogether. So obviously the policy side goes through all these large sports organizations and eventually goes to legislation. But as a starting point, how can the NCAA, in your opinion, better support women's athletics? Yeah. So you think about the, the NCAA and its relevancy here over the last five years. It, it's really been challenged, uh, particularly with the NIL passage with athletes, again, focusing on uh, mental health and wealth being spread uh, throughout uh, this. Um, the NCAA, in, in many cases, if it's, if it's going to remain relevant, it has to focus on, um, again, uh, 
the, the, the mental health and the mental clarity of athletes, finding ways to where student athletes can feel as if they also are students instead of having athletics first, <laughs> you know, push, you know, I've, I've seen um, several athletes. I remember teaching when I was in my graduate program, receiving my doctorate, one student athlete that was fell asleep a couple of times in class. And instead of just punishing the student, I just asked him to wait behind and talk to him. Like, are you okay? And then this student just literally broke down crying just because they've never had a professor say, are you okay? You know, and then they went on and explained all of the things that they have to go through, how they wanted to, uh, to be in a certain major, but was told not to, you know, uh, was told to man up and and take this and, and, and you know, work hard and, you know, all of these things. And those are the things that the NCAA needs to focus on because these athletes then who, who even go through injuries, concussions, things like that, are really tapped out. And, you know, you're talking about 18 to 22 year olds who are going through so much depression just to try to make a coach happy or an administrator happy. So the NCAA has to continue to challenge these things uh, when it comes to um, their laws, their policies, and move it beyond these, these PowerPoint presentations to say, okay, we've introduced this, we should introduce that without truly understanding how is it affecting these athletes. The NCAA probably has a large focus on their finances and how much money obviously college sports makes. The focus, in your opinion, should be more on the athletes themselves as students and they're, you know, a lot of them, a lot of them will be successful athletes. Not a lot of them will go professional and therefore having a degree they want or an area of expertise to focus on. Do you think that the schools, that the, that the schools themselves would be of assistance in that area? I know that obviously schools have a similar financial interest in the success of their sports, but the students interact more with, with their school, with their coaches, schools, administrators, and professors and all that more than the NCAA at large. What do you think the schools could do? Yeah. Oh, the, yeah, right. The schools are 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 at the front of the line, right? Uh, to to challenge all of the issues that are going on. I mean, um, <clears throat> we're seeing now many institutions are, um, at, at least in the sense of hiring practices or, or, or even other measures, are eradicating their diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, strategic plans. I'm at my institution. Here in Los Angeles, you know, we've worked for a couple of years on DEI strategies and things like that. But there are other institutions, again, that are challenging that. What does that mean for Title IX at that point? Then? And, and, you know, and what does that mean for the well-being um, of the athletes, again, when you are so close to them as an institution? As long as we continue to see the pushback in that realm at these institutions, it's going to continue to push for the amending of Title IX and, and other laws that are out there meant to supposedly eradicate discrimination. The institutions, along with the NCAA, like you say, again, are all about wealth building themselves. You know, I remember seeing in a a commitment from an athlete at the University of Florida or who was going to the University of Florida who was supposed to get a million dollar NIL deal 
And when that deal fell through, this athlete decommitted. <laughs> and so, you know, we're seeing all of these things, the, the politics, the the economics, the the sociology of it all sort of combining. And those will be the challenges of the institutions as well. The, the presidents, the athletics directors, um, the sports psychologists who are, you know, at these institutions. I know several sports psychologists at the university level who say that, you know, the continued challenge is, is, is the mental health and, and whether or not the institutions are even concerned about these athletes. So, again, that remains the challenge. Is there anything else on the subject that you'd like to mention or talk about? Before we wrap up. Yeah, uh, we are in a point in time um, in our society where it's rather easy to point out issues, you know, to talk about things that affect millions of people, not only in the organizational level, but, you know, at the, at the education level as well. Um, my thing is, again, I think in order for many of these initiatives to be successful, they must be evaluated, you know, they must be implemented, of course, and, and revised if necessary. But there needs to be, you know, clear cut strategies that are based on the research that is necessary to understand what's going on. And so if we can get to that point and we can make some waves in progress and athletes are important in that part of the infrastructure of that type of movement. But I think collaboratively working with uh, legal scholars, those who understand organizations, um, those who understand uh, sociology, anthropology, things like that, we can make some true change. All right, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking some time to uh, share your thoughts with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. You just heard an interview with Dr. Sean Anderson, an associate professor of organizational communication at Loyola Marymount University. This has been the Baldy Center for Law and Social Policy podcast produced at the University at Buffalo. You can learn more about the center on our website, buffalo.edu slash baldycenter. If you would like to share your thoughts on this podcast, tweet us at Baldy Center or send us an email at baldycenter at buffalo.edu. I'm your host, Simon Honig. Thanks for listening.